morning. And uh, I'll try that one again. Hi. It's, uh, it's great to have you here this morning. Really, really glad you're here. I wore this jacket today, and I've been teased for wearing it. I guess I just look too cool, or something's going on. Um, so I'm going to be wearing it week after week after... No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Great, great to have you here today. My name's Ken, and uh, I am an elder here at Grace. And for those of you who are watching online, welcome. You are a special group of people, and we're so glad that you're able to join us today on this great day as we are celebrating the great Savior, our great God, together this morning. Um, we are in a series called Eight Days That Changed the World. Eight Days That Changed the World. And um, this, what we're looking at are the eight days that begin with Palm Sunday, and then there's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Good Friday, Saturday, and Easter Sunday that I like to call Resurrection Sunday. And what we're doing is we're actually looking at each of those eight days. It's kind of a mini biography of this last eight-day stretch in Jesus' life before he rises from the dead. And th it's interesting because you can actually go into Scripture and pick out what is going on on each of those days, which I think is kind of exciting because we can walk with him through those eight days as we get ready for our experience of celebrating on Easter weekend in a little while from now. Um, there was, there has, John did a great job last week talking about Palm Sunday and how incredible it was of what took place on that particular day with all of the excitement and all of the, the wonder and the joy of Palm Sunday. And um, it was interesting to watch Jesus because in many ways he's throwing his own parade. Did you know that? I mean, he says, go get the donkey. He says, let's get ready. I'm going to Jerusalem. He's throwing his own parade. And at one point in the parade, he actually says, the rocks will cry out if you don't. So he's on this really big high around Easter Sunday. And then, as John mentioned, he goes into this moment where he is weeping, where he was filled with sorrow, where he's struggling. In Easter Sunday, Jesus is agonizing in one way, and then on Monday, he's going to become angry. On Easter Sunday, while he starts with joy, there's a sadness about him, and then he gets mad on Easter Sunday. On, on that Monday. It's, it's a revolutionary shift that seems to take place in his experience. And I guess the question I want to ask us today is, what makes you angry? What is the thing that ticks you off, the thing that makes you boil over, the thing that makes you mad? What are those things that do that? I wrote a list down. Maybe it's one or two of these things. Is it traffic jams, long grocery store lineups, bad weather, Snow plows, following them or after they refill your driveway once you've emptied it. Telemarketers, snow plows, <laughs> earthquakes, disease, lies, the leafs. Snow plows, homework, gossip, email, computers, your hair, bathroom scales, coworkers, zits, neighbor's dog, snow plows. Calories, diapers, alarm clocks, bad drivers, red lights, snow plows. You'll know this, I was following one today on my way here. All of us, I think it's true, right? All of us get angry. All of us have things that make us angry. And what we really need to understand sometimes is the things that make us angry often are a measurement of how mature we are. Aren't you glad you came? I mean, if we can get mad at those simple little things like snow plows, okay, we get angry about those, and not angry about maybe things like poverty and disease and mental health issues, then, well, maybe, maybe we're not as mature as we need or like to be. 
What we really want to do, don't we, as followers of Jesus, is I want to get mad at the same things that God gets mad at. I want to be angry over the same kinds of things that cause God to be angry. And of course, that raises this question. What makes Jesus angry? Why is he angry on Monday? What is going on in his life on that day? What makes Jesus angry? Well, to look at it, let's go to Mark chapter 11. We're going to hang out in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 19. I don't know how many of you have a Bible app on your phone, but if you go to the church website, one of the things we're pushing is the U version. Go down there, you can download it for free. It's absolutely amazing free tool that you can use to read your Bibles. And if you've got a phone here today, you'll please look at that. If you've got a hard copy like I've got, please look in Mark chapter 11. And you might want to go back and reread this passage after we're done today. But let's dive in. This is what's happening. You notice that Mark tells us the next day. The next day what? The next day after Palm Sunday. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. So you'll notice a couple of things. First of all, it's the day after Palm Sunday. Secondly, they're in Bethany. Well, why are they in Bethany? Well, Bethany is where... Martha and Mary and Lazarus live, those siblings, and they must have had some large home there because it appears that during this experience, these eight days, there are times when Jesus and the disciples are going to be with Mary and Martha and, and, and Lazarus in their home, and then they'll go back to Jerusalem and then they'll come back to Bethany again. It's a very, very short distance between the two. So they're hanging out there. It appears that they didn't do real good at breakfast that morning because you'll notice it says the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was what? He was hungry. So Jesus is hungry at this particular point. Look what it says in the next verse. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Jesus gets ticked at a tree. He's angry at a tree. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, if Jesus gets angry at a tree, I can get angry at that snowplow. I mean, it just makes sense, right? Where's that passage, Ken? Mark chapter, where is it found? Mark 12, 14. A little bit. A little bit strange, isn't it? I mean, when we think about Jesus, we like the miracles where he's walking on water and healing the blind and raising the dead. Oh, those are all cool. But what on earth is happening here where he turns around and he curses a tree? In fact, if you go down to verse 20, if you sneak down to verse 20, here's what you read. In the morning, so this is the next day, so this is now Tuesday, in the morning on Tuesday, in the morning, they've gone back to Bethany, in the morning on Tuesday, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered what and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the tree you cursed is withered. Now, what is going on here? Why did Jesus do this to this little tree? Like, maybe you have trees you wish someone would curse, you know, especially in the fall when you're raking the leaves, right? I mean, what's going on here? What's happening here? And if you're a disciple, what are you thinking about right now in terms of Jesus? Have you ever been in a room where people have been ticked and they've been angry? How have you responded to that? Do you not find yourself kind of like shuffling back and thinking, I, this guy, this person's losing it and I don't want to be near them right at this particular point. I kind of wonder if the disciples got a little quiet, maybe a little bit distant from Jesus. Maybe they're walking right behind him and going, what did we just see? I've never seen anything like that before. What's going on here? Well, let's go to verse 15, okay? 
Back to verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, this is Monday, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now, I'm, I don't know how you're seeing this, but to me, I'm going, one guy is doing all this and stopping people from moving around? Whatever kind of presence Jesus has, it's very powerful at this particular moment. Here's what we read, and he does all this, and then he's teaching them. And as he taught them, he said, it, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Is he ticked? Yes, he is. Look at this. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this because he's really attacking them and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and the disciples went out of the city, and we know understand by looking, as we already have, that they go back to Bethany. Jesus is ticked, and he's flipping tables, and he's stopping people from moving around. You can hear animals scurrying everywhere. This is Jesus? This is Jesus? What's going on on Monday? What's going on on Monday? And it's the question that we need to ask ourselves, and it's this one. What makes Jesus mad? What makes Jesus angry? One of the things you will notice if you pick up Scripture and read the story, the account of Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice that this is not an unusual thing that Jesus is angry at. We're going to look at some passages that declare this even more so. There is something that gets Jesus really riled up, really angry, and you know what it is? It's called hypocrisy. Can you say that with me, please? Hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. I believe that the cursing of the fig tree and the flipping of the tables in the temple compound were all about the same thing. They were all about hypocrisy. And as I already mentioned, if you look into Scripture, you can see over and over again that Jesus makes these accusations, these challenges against hypocrisy. Well, what is hypocrisy? I think that's a really good question. It's not a failure to live out the way that you believe you should live. I mean, all of us blow that, right? It is, in fact, the act of pretending. A hypocrite is a person who pretends to be better than he or she is. That's at least one dimension. It's, it, there's a number of dimensions around it. It's interesting and kind of sad that one of the reasons, one of the top reasons in the top three, sometimes it moves up and down in that fr phrasing, that researchers have done as to what people think about Christians, that in that top three framework, that they will say they're a bunch of hypocrites. That Christians say things, but they don't live the way that they say. They preach things, but they don't act out what they preach. They pretend to be better than they are and look down on others. That's their accusation of us. And quite frankly, you look historically, and it seems to be the case. And it's interesting that people who are not believers in Jesus have the same anger toward hypocrisy that Jesus has. He looks at it that way, too. The word is an interesting word for hypocrite. It actually comes from out of the Greek theater realm, that a person who was acting, they would often have actors and they would just put a mask in front of their face, then they would go backstage, put another mask in front of their face and be a different character on stage. And this masking, this putting this mask on, that word for that is the Greek word from which we get the word hypocrite. It means to pretend to be what you're not. It means to act out what's not really true of you. 
It means to be a pretender. And it's living out, in some ways, an inconsistency in your life. And it's often looking down on people. Here are some statements that Jesus makes. Let's just unpack them for us. He says this, Matthew records this in chapter 6, and when you pray, Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing on the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. And in other words, he's saying the hypocrites often will come out and demonstrate or show to people, do things in public, do things in a way that will impress you, but really that's not what they're like on the inside, and, and Jesus is attacking that for sure. And it tends to, hypocrisy tends to happen very quite frankly in, in the realm of religion. They love to be seen by others. It's about their external that really is the important thing, the mask that they tend to wear. They want to be seen by others. Here's what we read. Jesus says this a little bit later. He says, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. You ever heard that line, you don't practice what you preach? Well, that was, came from Jesus, and it's about hypocrisy. It's about that going through the motions, but not really there. And that's what often happens, or that's what often is seen when we look at people who claim to be followers of Jesus. They're wearing a mask, but they don't really live out what they claim to be experiencing. There's a story, I don't know whether, I don't think it's true, but I'll tell you it anyway, um, about a man who was going to a costume party one night, and it was a thundering, blistery night, in, in, and it was happening apparently in England, and uh, um, I, he decided to dress up like the devil, like what you would normally understand the devil to be. So he had this red outfit on with a tail behind him, carrying a pitchfork with the horns and everything. And he's going down the streets, getting, going to this costume party, and the thunder starts to roll, and the rain starts to horrifically come down. And in a moment of, 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 of you know, quick thinking, he runs up the steps and doesn't realize he's stepping into a church. He opens the back door of the church and stands there in the back doorway. At that particular moment, a clap of thunder and lightning strikes, and the room lights up, and the power goes out, and they turn around and look, and there is what they think to be Satan standing in the back of the, of the room. When he, the crowd gets up and starts screaming, he thinks there's a problem with the building, forgetting he's wearing all this outfit, starts running towards the crowd. They're pouring out through the front of the building. Finally, there's one old woman, lady sitting at the front, and he stands there looking at her, and she says to him, oh, devil, oh, devil, I've been a member of this church for 30 years, but I've really been on your side all the time. That, that's that kind of pretending to be something you're not, right? Pretending to be something you're not. I don't think the story's true. But anyway, look what else Jesus says. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Going through the motions, but not really engaging in our hearts going through the motions. It's something that we can tend to move toward. It's, a, it's that pretending peace that can be so readily something we move into. Are we open to admitting our failures or are we pretending all the time? I believe that Jesus' most scathing remarks in Scripture are directed toward hypocrites. Look at this passage, Matthew 23. Woe! To you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That'll singe your eyebrows, won't it, when he's talking to you? I mean, is Jesus mad? Is Jesus angry? Is Jesus involved in this? 
He really, really, really looks at hypocrisy and pushes it down. And, and if you unpack this, this passage a little more, here's some of the things I think you learn. Hypocrisy is about pretending you are better than you are. Pretending you are better than you are. It's wearing that mask. It, it's about impressing others with what isn't true about you. In, in, a, in a sense, it's about, I, I want you to worship me. I want you to idolize me. I want you to think better of me. I want to elevate me. It's a bit of form of self-worship, isn't it? Or how about this? It's about going through the motions, just going through the motions without really being engaged. Now, I do that sometimes, and I'm sure all of us do. But when that's a pattern of our lives, when we seem to be satisfied with that, that's the failure that Jesus really speaks to. It's about elevating self at the expense of truth. Elevating self at the expense of truth. So what's going on here when we talk about hypocrisy? Let's go back to the account that we've already looked at, okay? So Jesus walks and comes across this fig tree. It doesn't have any figs on it, and he curses it. Why? I believe, as I've already mentioned, that this is an illustration of hypocrisy. You see, it was not the time of the season of the year for figs. It wasn't the season of the year for figs. But when fig trees have figs, they also have leaves. When the leaves are on a fig tree, it has figs. So this wasn't the time, but this fig tree has leaves, but no figs. It should have had figs. It didn't have figs. It shouldn't even have had leaves. But it's pretending to be a tree with figs on it. So when Jesus gets up there, he's already, I'm sure, thinking about his, 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 his anger towards hypocrisy. He says, you're a hypocritical tree, okay? Because you don't have figs on you, and you should have figs on you if you got leaves on, and I'm going to make you what you really are. You're dead, because there is no value to you if you don't have these figs. And so he curses the tree. He curses it. When he comes into the temple compound, we've got another struggle going on, right? Because the temple compound is designed for worship. It's designed as a place for Gentiles to come who are seekers of God and for them to be in this place and hear about God and learn about God and perhaps step over the line of faith and follow Judaism. That's what it was for. But they've turned it into a marketplace. So if you're a seeker, you're not going to get any worship here. You're going to get a totally false, false presentation that's not what it was designed for. Secondly, when you came to Passover, and remember John talked a lot about how many people might have been in Jerusalem at this time. People would travel from a far way for Passover. It was the celebration, as was mentioned last week, of the removal from Egypt, that the angel of death would pass over them. So they would celebrate this on a regular basis. People would come for miles, and in coming, they were also coming to sacrifice, to offer their offerings to God as an act of worship and confession of their sin. When they got there, here's what was going on, historians tell us. In order for you to enter into this place of worship, you need to exchange your currency, your Roman currency, into Tyrian currency, which was closest to the Hebrew shekel. And they were charging an exorbitant amount of money to make that exchange. That was wrong. On top of that, they exacted temple taxes on you at the very same time. So all of this was, was happening, this money exchange. The priests, the religious leaders were becoming very wealthy. Many of the people who came to offer a sacrifice didn't own a lamb, couldn't get a lamb, but they would come to purchase a lamb. So they would come into the temple compound, and they had these stalls where they were selling kosher lambs. They were healthy lambs, beautiful lambs, and they were being to be offered as sacrifice. And the person would pay an exorbitant amount for this lamb. And then what we understand was happening is that they were going back around, 
they were exchanging that healthy lamb for a bad lamb, and the priests were slaying that, and they would bring the healthy lambs back out and resell them. So what you have is all this kind of corruption happening inside the temple compound as well. It was terrible in terms of injustice, and it was hypocrisy at its worst, because they'd taken this place that was a holy place, a place of worship, and they were celebrating. You guys can hear the train, right? Okay, we're all good. It's not just me. I'm just wondering. <laughs> so there's this beautiful place of worship that's happening and how wonderful and special it is. And what they've done is they've turned it into this place of defilement and mockery. It was turning people away from God. And that's the problem with hypocrisy is that it tends to turn people away from God, right? Doesn't it? How are you doing in your own life with hypocrisy? Do you preach one thing and live a little different thing? Do you preach be honest and yet deceive? Do you preach don't lie, but maybe lie a little on your income tax return? Do you say don't gossip, but maybe get into it? How are we doing? It's a challenge, isn't it? Let me, think, let me remind you of this. First of all, hypocrisy destroys us. We become so focused on the outside when hypocrisy grabs hold of us that we don't take care of the inside, and we carve out the inside. There's an inconsistency between, between the mask we're wearing and what's really going on, and we actually hollow out our inside. We become empty on the inside. We know there's no genuineness between what people are seeing and what's going on on the inside of me. I become a shell, really, of who I really am. It destroys us. It distances us. Hypocrisy moves us away from other people. You see, if I'm wearing a mask all the time, you're not really seeing me. You're seeing the mask I'm putting in front of me. You don't really know me. The person that you know, the person that I'm presenting to you, is the mask. It's not me. You don't know me. And there's a distance that automatically happens when I do that. When I pretend to be other than I am, over and over again, I distance myself from the very people I should get close to because we do need each other. And how sad is that, that that's what hypocrisy will do. Hypocrisy will deify us. I've already mentioned that what we're, look, what we're looking at is a person to worship us or celebrate us or think better of us than we really are. And so there's a sense of self-worship that happens in hypocrisy. I want you to look at me and see me as better than who I really am. I'm deliberately presenting myself in such a way. The other thing that it does is it denies God. It denies that God is of value. It denies that God is aware of what's going on. It denies that God is in the room, that God understands what's going on. And we've shifted our audience to me instead of to him. And I believe that one of the key ways for us to fight hypocrisy is to live before an audience of one, is to live out our lives before an audience of one, and that one is God. We are going to live out our lives so that he is pleased, so that he sees me, so that he is honored by my life. I don't want to live before an audience of people. I'm not trying to please them. I want to try and please God. I want to try and honor God. And I know that this God who is holy and majestic and awesome sees me for who I am. And if I can see him as the one I want to please, the one I want to live for, the one I want to celebrate, the one I want to honor when I put him in the right place, it causes me to then live in a way that will reflect and honor him. Now, none of us is perfect. I understand. I've been here long enough to know none of you is perfect either, okay? But that, that's what happens. We're, we're, we fail there. 
But the honest person, the person who wants to live before God, is constantly striving to do that, is opening themselves up, is taking off the masking, saying, God, I want you to be honored in my life. Let me go back again and just remind you, here's what Jesus says. Be on your guard against hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. So Jesus is saying, one day the masks are off. Why don't you start living that way now? Live before an audience of one. Can you say that with me, please? Live before an audience of one. If we could order our lives in a way that would re reflect the wonder and beauty and glory and, of Jesus, the wonder and beauty of God, the holiness of God, we'll get rid of these masks and all the negative things that hypocrisy does to it that we've been talking about. There is a ministry that I'm a really big fan of, and it's called Celebrate Recovery. And one of the cool things about Celebrate Recovery is that, um, and I've spoken at a, a number of, of CR events, and one of the things that they have a habit to do is they'll stand up, and, and, and this is what I will do when I go to speak. I'll say, my name is Ken Taylor. I'm a grateful follower of Jesus Christ, and I struggle in the areas of pride and people-pleasing. And they will say, hi, Ken. That's what they do. And each person who gets up will take the mask off. And they will say, here's an area that I struggle in. Now, I'll say this to you, and I'll, my very favorite group to be with, my very favorite group to speak at, apart from you, is the people at Celebrate Recovery. I just love being with them. I love speaking with them. I love interacting with them, because you know what? All the masks are at the door, and we're hanging out with each other that way. It's really cool. It's really cool to be with a group of people that aren't pretending that are just being open with what's going on. A number of years ago, I had, had invited a whole bunch of pastors to uh, this, this room, and in the room we had a bunch of people from Celebrate Recovery who were sharing their journey. Some of them were on the staff at the church that I was a part of, and some of them were just volunteers in the church. There were about six or seven of them, and they got up one at a time, and they just shared their journey, their struggle, with the, the hurts and the hang-ups and the habits that had got a grip on their lives. And some of them stood up and said, Hi, my name's Jim, and I really struggle with pornography, and I was going to be open with you. It's been a struggle for so many years in my life, and I'm still struggling with it, but God has been able to open the door so that I've been moving beyond that. And somebody else will st stood up and said, I'm, I'm, my name is, is Sarah, and I really struggle with food. I have a deep desire for food. It's got a dominance over my life, and I've been watching as God's been releasing me from that. And somebody else would stand up and say, I've got a real struggle with um, alcohol, and it's got a, such a grip on my life, and I'm really trying to work through it, and God's been helping me. Went down through these six, seven people, and they stood up and talked about their journeys. Took a little longer than what I just did, and opened up. And I remember after the meeting, I had a number of pastors who'd come up to me and say to me, wow, that was like mind-blowing. And one of the things that happened was a few of them said to me, I guess this is what the church is supposed to be like, isn't it? And I thought, yeah, that's what it should be like. We're a bunch of broken people, right? And we mess up. But we shouldn't be pretenders. Because that's not what God wants us to do. And it moves us far away from how we need to live our lives. You know, it's interesting. When we become a follower of Jesus, we're quite open about how we've messed up. I'm sinner, I'm far from God. 
and I need to put my faith in him. And then somehow after we step over the line of faith, we, we kind of all of a sudden pretend like we got it together. And we don't. We don't. We need to be open. We need to be vulnerable. We need to take off the masks. I know there's careful ways of doing that. I understand that. But hey, you're not perfect, and you're not going to be until we get to heaven. That's a truth that we need to understand and embrace. Live before an audience of one. Will you say that with me, please? Live before an audience of one. He is holy, but man, he loves you. He's perfect, but boy, he wants to help you live out your life so that you can be like this very Jesus and get mad at the same things that Jesus gets mad at. You bow your heads in prayer with me, please, this time. Heavenly Father, it's easy to pretend, and all of us have done it. Maybe some of us are doing it now. And our pretending is, is, is so wrong. I mean, it hurts us. It hurts those around us. It certainly hurts you. And we can't grow that way. How can you fix something that we pretend we don't have that needs fixing? Lord, I pray that you might help us, each one of us, certainly me included, to learn to take the mask off in the right way at the right time for your glory. Help us to honor you in this way. Help us to look for help from each other because that's what we're here for. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who comes along to move in our lives and convict us and draw us to that point where we will get the help that we need to live in a way that would honor you. Help us to be humble and gentle and kind, and loving, and sensitive. Help us to walk in a way that would be just like Jesus does. So people would see that we're not pretenders, we're not wearing masks, we're struggling too, just like they are, but we found somebody who loves us, and cares for us, and took care of all our wrongs. One's past, the one's present, the one's future, and who will be with us forever, and Lord, we want them to know that Jesus too. So thank you for this time together. Thank you for being a holy God. Holiness is beautiful. Holiness is wonderful. Holiness is pure. And it's how we want to live. So make us holy like you're holy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.